Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to the preaching of your holy word, give us assurance that your word is true, it is truth itself, and that in it you grant us the precious promises that we need for life and godliness, that you are always faithful to keep your promises. You never fail. Build up your people tonight through the proclamation of your word through your servant, for we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So please open again your Bible to Daniel chapter 1, which we read earlier, page 737 in the Pew Bibles. Two weeks ago, we began this series in Daniel with an introduction to the book. And tonight we'll look at this first chapter, which is the first of six chapters of court narratives, as Daniel and his friends find themselves in exile, serving in Babylon in the court of pagan kings, although one may not be a pagan by the time the story's over. And now the question confronts them, how will they remain faithful to the Lord while in exile? while surrounded by ungodliness. It was the Lord who sent them into exile, and while this was a punishment, he had also made it clear that they will be in exile for a long time, for 70 years, and they could not simply sit around on their hands and wait for their return. The prophet Jeremiah would write a letter from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon. It would be several years later, but... His words still apply to the situation of Daniel and his companions. He writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. How counterintuitive it must have been to to be told to seek the welfare of this oppressive and ungodly empire. And yet if they did this, they would be blessed. They had to learn how to live their lives and remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of this pagan culture while maintaining their calling to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. And how much this would be particularly difficult for Daniel and his friends who had this particular calling to serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Of course, this position had been forced upon them, and yet they do not resist it. Many other things are forced upon them, as we'll see in this chapter, and most of them they do not resist. But in one area they chose to draw the line. They refused the king's food and wine. As we examine Daniel's response to the various things forced upon them in this chapter, we'll reflect on what we can learn as we live in a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to Christianity. We too are called 
to live as faithful pilgrims and exiles, to seek the welfare of those around us, all while remaining true to our calling, which remains the same as Daniel's, to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to live as witnesses of Christ in the midst of the darkness around us. So as we work our way through this first chapter, you can see that it divides itself up fairly neatly into three parts, around three declarations of the Lord's providential working in this chapter. So first, the Lord gave them over into exile, Second, the Lord gave them grace and favor. And third, the Lord gave them wisdom. First, the Lord gave them over into exile. Last time I gave the historical introduction and background covering the first few verses of the chapter, detailing the siege of Jerusalem and then Daniel and his friends being carried off to Babylon into exile. Of course, the Babylonians would surely have attributed their victory to the superiority of their false god, Marduk, who really was the high god of a whole pantheon of pagan deities. The scripture is clear. It was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. It was the Lord who sent his people into exile. And this was according to the covenant curses declared as a penalty for breaking the Mosaic covenant, as laid out in Deuteronomy 28. 28. And Daniel and his three friends were actually just the first of three waves of people taken into exile. And yet Daniel receives this exile as God's just discipline of his people. We'll see this explicitly later in the book, in Daniel's prayer of confession for the people in chapter 9. He prays, and this is part of a much longer prayer, and yet Daniel prays, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Daniel nine eleven. This exile is not only a fulfillment of the covenant curses, it also fulfills a prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. Verse 3 indicates that Daniel and his companions were either nobility or members of the royal family. And therefore, this event was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy against King Hezekiah after he so foolishly had opened his house and his royal storehouses to the prince of Babylon over a hundred years earlier. This is what Isaiah had said. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon, 2 Kings 20, 16 through 18. And I would say this is only partially being fulfilled here. It will be even more fully fulfilled in the second and third waves of the exile. And here I think it's worth noting that the Hebrew word translated eunuch, both in Daniel 1, 3, refer to Ashpenaz, and also in this prophecy from 2 Kings, is better translated not eunuch, but simply court official or official. In some royal courts, the officials were indeed eunuchs. We must rely on contextual clues to determine whether or not that would be the case. 
And there's nothing in the context here to indicate that either Ashpenaz or Daniel and his friends would have been castrated and made to be eunuchs. In fact, it clearly says the opposite in verse 4, that they were youths without blemish. And so this Hebrew word is usually translated simply official, with the exception of where it is referred, used to refer to the court officials in the book of Esther, who were caring for the royal harem, and there they certainly would have been eunuchs. And so that's how it's translated in that book. So from here forward, I will refer to Ashpenaz simply as an official. And so we see here the grave prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled here in Daniel, at least in part. Then we read in verses 4 and 5 of how Daniel and his friends were to receive three years of education in Babylon. Or perhaps it would be better to say three years of indoctrination. Three years of molding, of shaping, of conforming to the ways of their new masters. We learn that they were youths without blemish, of good appearance, already skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. Although they were young, probably only about 15 years old, they had already been well-trained in Judah, not only in their parents' homes, but most likely in the king's court in Jerusalem, they were being raised to be nobles, to be politicians, to serve there in Jerusalem in the king's service. In this way, they could not only serve, serve King Nebuchadnezzar in general in his court, but they could help him understand how to govern his new province under his thumb. And they would also be useful hostages kept to hopefully prevent any future rebellions. And besides any prior political education, what's most important is that they had been well catechized. They knew the Lord and they had a rock solid foundation which would allow them to stand fast, not only through these three years of indoctrination, but for Daniel at least, as we see, he would stand fast for the next 70 years that he would serve foreign kings while in exile. You can think of this three years of education as being much like a college education today. They're given not only training, but also room and board. It's not just dining hall food. They are to be served from the king's own table. And this is meant to be a gift and an honor. We'll see their response to that food in a moment. Verse 4 says they'd be instructed in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now here it helps to understand that term. Chaldeans, they were once a separate people from the Babylonians, but this people had actually conquered the Babylonians in the past, and they now formed the ruling elite of the empire. And so Nebuchadnezzar was actually a Chaldean by blood, but he's now the ruler of the Babylonian empire. And so there are, are nuances, but for our sakes, the Chaldeans are simply referring to the elites among the Babylonians. This instruction would have been quite extensive. As I said last time, the language of the court was Aramaic. That was also the lingua franca of the whole empire, just as half of the book of Daniel was written in Aramaic. But the scholarly language, the elite language of the scholars of Babylon, was the more ancient language of Akkadian, in which many of the great classical works were written, many of which are preserved even to this day. Perhaps you've heard of some of them. 
If you've heard of the law code of Hammurabi, which has some civil similarities to the civil law codes in the Mosaic law, although it is far harsher than the Mosaic law. Or perhaps you've heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which contains a version of the flood story with striking parallels to the biblical account. Perhaps you've heard of the Enuma Elish, which contains a creation account, which is nothing at all like the biblical creation account. Daniel would have also studied the Babylonian Chronicles, documenting the history of the empire. So they are being trained... Or better, they are being reprogrammed in order to be molded and conformed into the Babylonian ways and culture so that they might serve, serve the king of Babylon. Another part of this molding and conforming was to give them each a new name. Of course, you're familiar with this practice from the Bible, but usually it goes the other way. When a person is brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous light, occasionally God gives that person a new name. So you know how God changed Abram's name to Abraham, Jacob's name to uh, Israel, Simon's name to Peter. And here, when these men are dragged out of Judah into Babylon, the empire attempts to assert their dominance by giving them Babylonian names. Each of their original names points to the God of Israel in some way. Daniel's name means God is judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is, or in other words, who is like unto God. And Azariah means the Lord helps, or the Lord is my helper. And now they are given new names, and some of these meanings are a bit hard for scholars to puzzle out, but some are clearer than others, but I'll give you the, my, the best guesses out there. Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, means, may the lady, that is the goddess Ishtar, protect the king. Hananiah's new name, Shadrach, is simply an insult. It means, I am very afraid. Similarly, Hananiah is given the name Meshach, meaning I am insignificant. And Azariah is renamed Abednego, meaning servant of Nabu, referring to the Babylonian god Nabu, son of the high god Marduk. Now, certainly, these new names would have been easier for the Babylonians to remember, easier for them to pronounce, but they would have also been shameful to the Judeans. Yet we see no objection from them. They offer no resistance at this point. Perhaps like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, they were rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of their God. As we move forward in the story, we'll notice that depending on the context, the various names are used for Daniel and his friends. All throughout Daniel chapter 1, the Hebrew names are used. But our children especially are probably more familiar with the story of the fiery furnace in chapter 3, and there the Babylonian names are used. So most tend to be more familiar with those names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I think we should remember and even prefer the Hebrew names, the names that honor the Lord, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So far, we've seen in this first section that the Lord sent them in 
to exile, and they received this from God's hand. God was being faithful to his covenant, even if that meant executing the sentence, executing the covenant curses. They also received these three years of training, even if it was indoctrination. And they received these insulting names. So far, they have not really resisted. But now let's consider where they draw the line. This brings us to our second point tonight. The Lord gave them grace and favor to remain holy and undefiled. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the officials to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel makes the decision not to eat the king's food or drink his wine. Certainly, it would have been delicious food, very fine wine. And the reason given is simple. He did not want to be defiled. But why? Why would the food defile? Before we answer that, we must recall the presupposition that comes first. To defile something, it must first be holy. It must first be clean. It must be pure. And that is what Daniel is seeking to maintain. Although he can do nothing about his location, he is in Babylon, he can do nothing about his vocation to train and then serve the king, he can do something about his food. And that's where he focuses his efforts. He wants to maintain ritual purity by maintaining faithfulness to the kosher food laws. But why exactly would the king's food defile him and his friends? And here it's, it's tough. We're not given a lot of details. We can't say for certain, but there are a few likely reasons. First of all, this food was most likely offered to idols or dedicated to the idols in some ways, some way. The meat may have first been sacrificed in a temple before being brought to the king's table. It's also possible that it contained non-kosher meats like pork or shellfish. Another possibility is that the blood was not properly drained, which would have violated uh, the commandment against eating blood from Genesis 9. And of course, all these problems could be avoided by not eating meat and eating only vegetables. But more mysterious is the decision not to drink the king's wine. The only prohibition concerning wine in the Mosaic law is for those under a Nazarite vow, and there's no indication here that Daniel was under a Nazarite vow. Again, perhaps it's possible um, that the wine was connected in idol- to idolatry in some way, but if that's the case, why wouldn't the vegetables also be connected to idolatry in some way? It's also possible, perhaps, that Daniel wanted to undertake a Nazarite vow, but this is, this is not stated, and it would have required him to offer sacrifice in the temple to start a Nazarite vow, which obviously was not possible for him in Babylon. So why he rejected the wine is a bit mysterious, but perhaps it's this. It's clear that he's chosen a diet of great simplicity. And overall, the goal for Daniel and his friends was to maintain their distinctiveness as a holy people in the midst of this ungodly empire. And their chief tool for doing this was keeping the kosher food laws that the Lord had given them in the law of Moses. 
And we come to verse 9, and here we have the second key statement declaring the Lord's working. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the officials. And the chief of the officials said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Notice again, it is God who works here to give Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of Ashpenaz. At the same time, Ashpenaz makes it very clear he fears the king. And so this answer, it's surprising. And you'd think, if God gave grace and favor, the answer would be, yes, surely I will grant your request. If you look closely at verse 10, and I hadn't noticed this until I studied this passage, there is no actual yes, there is no actual no, but the implied answer is clearly no. So what does Daniel do? He doesn't press his case with Ashpenaz, but he doesn't give up either, does he? Since he didn't receive a no from Ashpenaz, he simply goes and asks someone else. He goes to the person under Ashpenaz, which verse 11 calls the steward, the person immediately responsible for his food rations. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the officials had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate, at the, king's ta- ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. You see, this time, Daniel's persistence, his wisdom, his planning had paid off. We're not given all the details of how the switch was made, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if the steward was glad of this arrangement, if he got to keep the king's rich food and wine for himself and get to trade it for some simple vegetables and water for the four young men. Now, this term vegetables, it would be broader than our modern conception today, so it would have included grains and bread. So yes, there would have been enough to sustain them, very much like a modern uh, vegetarian diet today, but clearly there would have not been any meat. So this was not a starvation diet, and yet it was a surprise to the steward who knew what they were doing, that their health was so robust when this simple diet yielded better result than, this, than the rich food of the king's table. The point is clear. Their robust health came from the Lord. The question naturally arises here. Shall we say a miracle is being done? Three other times in this chapter, we haven't gotten to the third yet, but three other times, God's providence is directly highlighted here in this chapter. But even these things are not so much supernatural interventions as God working providentially through natural means. Here the text doesn't say something explicitly, but I think something similar is going on here. I think it's enough to say 
that it was the Lord's good providence and blessing. But also note this. This diet was private. It was not public. Presumably, no one knew beyond the four men and the steward. They weren't doing this to show off or to gain any notoriety. They were doing this primarily to remain faithful to their Lord. And in fact, I'm sure they wouldn't have minded if it just so happened that they did grow scrawny on the diet. They were just trying to be faithful. But I'm also sure it was no surprise to them that obedience to the Lord also led to the Lord's blessing. Here I want to mention briefly a modern take on this passage. I remember, I don't know exactly when it was, but sometime in my youth, there was a a women's group in my church. They were doing a Bible study on Daniel. And they decided to follow, I think it was a, a supplement to their study or another book, The Daniel Diet. And if you look it up on the internet today, you can find all kinds of diet plans, meal plans for the 40-day Daniel diet or the Daniel fast. What should we say to these things? There's certainly nothing wrong with taking inspiration from biblical figures to improve your physical health. In fact, incorporating spiritual disciplines along with physical disciplines and accountability from other church members can be helpful for believers. But here are a few things I think you should keep in mind. First, I don't think this account was given with the purpose of recommending a particular diet. You should always remember the intent of Scripture. And the intent here is not to recommend Daniel's diet to us. Second, we should always remember the Old Testament kosher laws have passed away in the New Testament. We are no longer bound by them. And third, I think this is the most ironic We should keep in mind that Daniel and his friends gained weight. They were literally fatter in flesh by keeping this diet. I'm not saying that will necessarily happen to anyone who tries a modern formulation of the Daniel diet or Daniel fast today, since I'm sure all these restrict calories in some way. But it does seem like an odd place to take inspiration from for a diet Finally, let me note that this diet was temporary for Daniel. It lasted at least for the three years of his training, but at some point, we don't know when it came to an end. We read in Daniel 10.3, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks when he was receiving this vision. His verse implies that at the time of this vision, he had resumed the practice of eating eating meat and drinking wine. So at some point, he ended this diet that he had during his training. And now let's return to the main intent of this passage here in Daniel 1. Daniel was resolved to remain holy, not to be defiled with the king's food and wine. Although it required some persistence, some planning, some wisdom, the Lord granted him grace and favor in the eyes of the Babylonians to allow him to do so. And in their obedience, he and his friends were granted robust health in this simple diet. This brings us to our third point tonight. The Lord gave them wisdom. Verse 17. 
As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Again, God is the one who gives learning and skill. While all had learning and skill in literature and wisdom, Daniel alone had understanding in all visions and dreams. Of course, we know from throughout the scriptures that God is the all-wise one, source of wisdom, the giver of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9.10. My favorite chapters of the Bible of the most beautiful odes to wisdom is the poem found in Job 28. I'll read just a few verses from it. Surely there is a mind for silver and a place for gold that they refined, refine, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. The all-wise God, he is the source, the beginning of wisdom. So continuing, verse 18. At the end of the time, the king had commanded that they should be brought in. The chief of the officials brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So here they come. Their training is done. It's time for their final exam. And this is to be an oral exam administered by the king himself. We don't know exact, the exact nature of this exam. It says they asked him about anything, and it would have been likely all sorts of the things they had studied, the literature, the subjects they had studied. Perhaps he would even ask them their counsel on the political quandaries facing him at the moment to see if they had any insightful comments. They were examined, and they passed with flying colors. Ten times better is certainly hyperbole, and yet it indicates they were far superior to anyone else Nebuchadnezzar had in his service. Of course, we know the reason why. Because God himself had given them this learning and skill and wisdom and understanding. And yet, can you imagine standing for that sort of exam Standing as a faithful Israelite to be examined by a pagan king who holds not only your future but your very life in his hand, who can say at any moment, off with his head, it must have felt like walking through a minefield. Their answers had to be acceptable to the king, and yet they had to remain faithful to the Lord, faithful to the truth as they knew it according to the scriptures. I remember experiencing something similar, although certainly not with such high stakes. Writing my papers, taking exams for my philosophy and religious studies at classes at the University of Maryland. On one hand, I had to show that I understood the material I had been taught, but I also wanted to show where I disagreed and where there were clear holes in the professor's arguments. 
Have some of you had the same experience taking exams, covering topics like evolution or religion in public schools or universities? It's not that believers cannot learn what the world around us has to teach us, but we must remain on the firm foundation of the truth and not be moved from that foundation by falsehoods. The Bible is true in all that it says. But at the same time, we recognize the Bible does not say everything that there is to know. Of course, there are many topics about the natural created world that the Bible does not teach us about. And so we are glad to learn about those things, whether we learn those things from believers or unbelievers. We understand all things from a biblical worldview. By passing their final exam, Daniel and his friends are now ready to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. Don't let that fool you. They know who their true master is. They serve this king here on earth, that their real Lord is the God who rules heaven and earth. And that's really revealed in this final verse, the final verse which gives one last ray of hope shining through the clouds of exile. Verse 21, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This verse is taking us to the end of Daniel's service in the Babylonian court. Really, it's saying he outlives the Babylonian court. He outlives the Babylonian empire. As we learn in chapter 10, he lives at least until the third year of Cyrus's reign. Because Cyrus is the king of the Persian empire who does away with Babylon. Although this book records Daniel's life and visions, as we'll see, it's primarily not about Daniel's life. Daniel's visions, primarily about Daniel's God and about Daniel's coming Savior, Jesus Christ. This first chapter, it's really just the first chapter, the story of Daniel and his three friends in exile, showing us how they were dragged away from their homeland, how they received these insulting names without resistance, how they diligently studied and excelled in their stellings, in their studies for three years as they received wisdom from the Lord. And yet when it came to this issue of food, they traded the king's rich food and wine for simple bread, vegetables, and water in order to remain holy and pure unto the Lord. And in their obedience to the Lord, they received blessing. This is an example to us all. Just like Daniel, we are called to live lives of holiness in a world surrounded by ungodliness, surrounded by darkness. And so we, too, we are to to learn from this example and follow it. To recognize the hardships that Daniel faced, and we, too, will face hardships as we are pilgrims and exiles. But also see how his persistence Wisdom and obedience led to blessings. In many ways, this first chapter of Daniel is a miniature salvation story. Not that he was saved from exile, but there was a deliverance within exile. Within the confines that the Lord had placed him, the Lord has given Daniel and his companions all that they needed for life and godliness. 
He has raised them to counsel the king, and he will now use them to accomplish his purposes there. And in the coming chapters, we will see what mighty things he will do by their hands, how he will use them for the rising and falling of both kings and empires. The Lord God, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Shall we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these great examples of that you have given us, faithful men of the past who followed you, who walked with you, even through great hardship, who suffered greatly and yet remained faithful. And Lord, you know the path that you have laid out for each and every one of us and how you have called us to walk and to follow in the footsteps of a suffering Savior. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us to remain faithful, even as our Lord Jesus Christ suffered when he was tempted, and yet in all things he remained faithful. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, teach us to follow after our Savior, that you would show us, Lord, uh, which how we might best serve those around us and where we must draw the line, where we can learn from the world around us and how we must always remain true to you and all the things that you have revealed to us in your holy word, which is always true. And from our Savior, who is the truth incarnate. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.